right. Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Right. And we'll, we'll sing our hymn, Glorious Things of You Are Spoken. Glorious things of you are spoken, Zion, city of our God. He whose word cannot be broken, formed you for his own abode on the rock of ages founded. What can shake? Your sure repose with salvation's walls surrounded. You may smile at all your foes. See the streams of living waters springing from eternal love. Well, supply your sons and daughters, and all fear of want remove. Who can faint while such a river ever will the thirst assuage? Grace which, like the Lord, the giver never fails from age to age. Round each habitation hovering, see the cloud and fire appear for a glory and a covering. Showing that the Lord is near, thus deriving from their banner, light by night and shade by day. Say they feed upon the manna, which God gives them on their way. Save your sense of Zion City, I through grace a member am. Let the world pride or pity, I will glory in your name. Fading are the 
world's vain pleasures, all their boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasures, none but Zion's children know. Right, we'll continue with the uh, catechism memory work. What is the benefit of this eating and drinking? These words given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins show us that in the sacrament, forgiveness of sins, life and salvation are given us through these words. For where there is forgiveness of sins, there is also life and salvation. And the Bible memory work. Jesus said, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. John 6:56. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And uh, Luther's morning prayer. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger. And I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings in life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. All right, kids can uh, head off to Sunday school. In the uh, hymn of the month, glorious things of you are spoken. Uh, sorry, I started the hymn a little high, by the way. I'd, I keep. Uh, yeah, I keep meaning to bring a pitch pipe. Um, but uh, yeah. Um. Anyway, yeah, I, I it's on my nightstand. I keep meaning to bring it. Um, anyhow, the stanza two, see the streams of living waters springing from eternal love. So remember the context we talked about last week of this hymn. It's actually, it, it's probably the only, it's the only hymn I know of like this, I should say, where it's a hymn to the city of Zion, right? It's not a hymn directly to God, actually. It's a um, kind of a poetic device in this way where it's, addressed to a city and it's the the heavenly city the city where we dwell as it's the city of zion is an image of the church it's an image of where where god is present among his people um and ultimately the heavenly city when when we'll dwell in heaven with god and um 
So stanza one introduces that glorious things of you are spoken, Zion, city of our God. He whose word cannot be broken formed you for his own abode. Right. So God formed this city for his people to dwell in. Right. Um, and we're safe within the city walls. Right. So that that's the first stanza. The second stanza is this is uh, something that I think the imagery is coming from. If you go in to at the end of Ezekiel, Ezekiel has this multiple chapter uh, vision of the heavenly temple where God dwells. And one of the things that's going on there is that there's water running everywhere. Um, there's water flowing out of the temple and uh, there's there's str- this, these streams of living waters. Um, and I, I think it is very baptismal, right? That within the church, within the city, one of the things that God provides for us are these these springs of living water, right? Um, that, and as Christ says, uh, he who abides in me will never thirst, right? Um, that we have, the, this is kind of woman at the well imagery. If you go in, into the Old Testament, wells are this big deal, right? Because wells are this source of life, right? If, you, um, if you're traveling around the ancient Near East, you have to have a well, right? Uh, if you're going to live, right? Because you need water. And um, you're not necessarily always, sometimes you're next to a river, but maybe you're not next to a river, right? Maybe you're in the desert. So um, you have to dig wells. All right. Anyway, so this is the uh, this is kind of the image here in stanza two. See the streams of living water springing from eternal love. Well, supply your sons and daughters, and all fear of want remove. Who can faint while such a river ever will their thirst assuage? Grace, which like the Lord the giver, never fails from age to age. So I think this is about baptism, right? That the the baptismal waters are these springs of living waters that uh, make our that assuage our thirst, right? They, uh, f- their grace, which is continually poured out like a river, right? That we can always return to. We can always remember our baptisms, and we can. Um, and I, I like the line, "Well, supply your sons and daughters." That when you see baptisms in the church, what you're seeing is the continuation of new birth in the church, right? That the the sons and daughters of the church are going to be from generation to generation, continued to be given the same gift. So um, that's a that's a great stanza there. All right. Uh, in the catechism memory work, we have uh, John. Uh, well, we have the we're still in the sacrament of the altar, the Lord's Supper. These words. Uh, what's the benefit of the this eating and drinking? These words given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Show us that in the sacrament, forgiveness of sins, life and salvation are given us through these words. For there is forgiveness of sins, there is also life and salvation. And I, I like what Luther does here in saying that, look, the main thing is forgiveness of sins, right? This is what Jesus does when he says, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins, right? And... With all the means of grace, the forgiveness of sins is the center and the main thing, right? Whether it's confession and absolution, the forgiveness of sins is is the main thing in the absolution. Whether it's baptism, the forgiveness of sins is the main thing, right? Whether it's the preached word, the forgiveness of sins is the central thing. 
Um, also in the Lord's Supper, the forgiveness of sins is the central thing. But he says, where there is forgiveness of sins, we know that there is also life and salvation. Right? So when you, when you have the forgiveness of sins, that changes everything. Because our sin is what separates us from God. And when our sin is forgiven, that means we get to be reunited with God. Right? That means we have all of life and all of salvation. Right? That nothing else, nothing else matters. Um, and we, we get this in John 6 as well. Right, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. That when we take the Lord's Supper, right, we are with Christ and he is with us. And that is something that cannot be separated, right? Because where there is forgiveness of sins, there is life and salvation. All right. Any uh, questions or comments on the hymn or the catechism? Yeah. I have a comment on the hymn. My home church when I was growing up was named Zion. Oh, yeah. And Same. It, it had a, a little uh, it's emblem, a little rock at the bottom. And then it showed Christ ascending into heaven above mm. it. And it was on the front of the church. It was like 20 feet high. I mean, yeah. Huge. Nice. Yeah. yeah, I also went to a Zion growing up. That's a good name for a church. Uh-huh. It's a great name for a church. Um, all right. Good deal. All right. Any other questions, comments on the hymn, catechism? Let's jump back into Habakkuk. Um, I apologize. We're, we're still... I, I meant to be done with Habakkuk by now, but that, that is what it is. Um, let's see here. All right, so we're just finishing up some key passages here in Habakkuk, and I won't go through the whole outline and everything again just because we've already done that a couple weeks in a row now. But um, we're, we're looking specifically at um, Habakkuk chapter 3 to look at a couple different key passages. And if you do remember in the outline, chapter 3 of Habakkuk is about Habakkuk's submission. So the context here, I know I said I wasn't going to go through the whole thing again, but... Just really quickly, the context here is Habakkuk is the, these couple different prayers of lament that Habakkuk is experiencing uh, the downfall of Judah, and he's very depressed, for lack of a better word. And he cries out to the Lord and asks, oh, Lord, how long are you going to let this go on? If you're really a good God, why would you let all these bad things happen? Um all of these kinds of the kind of problem of evil. If you're really a just God, when are you going to execute justice on the nations? Right? Um, Habakkuk's questioning God. And remember, the name Habakkuk means the embracer. Right? And so ultimately, what's going to happen here in chapter three is that after the Lord answers him, right? And what have the, the Lord's answers been so far? Um, his answers have been. Uh, grace alone, right? And patience, right? The righteous shall live by, oh, and grace, I should say great faith and grace alone, right? The, the righteous shall live by faith, right? According to God's grace and, and patience. And, and we've talked about a couple other aspects as well. 
But uh, really what we're going to get here is that Habakkuk embraces or he submits to, the, to what the Lord's answer is. Okay. Um, all right. So let's look at uh, 3 verse 2 to start with. Okay, so he pray he's praying again. Um, o Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. And I'm actually going to read just a little bit more. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens. And the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. He had rays flashing from his hand, and there his power was hidden. Okay, and I could, I'm gonna, I could keep going, but I'm gonna stop there. Um, for the next probably dozen verses or so, after uh, three verse two to four is what I read. But for the next dozen verses or so, he's going to go on to recount the Lord's creation, okay? And this is reminiscent of, if you, uh, you're, you might be more familiar with the book of Job than you are with the book of Habakkuk. Mm-hmm. But in, in Job, what's one of the main arguments that God brings forth against Job for allowing suffering to happen? Basically, that God knows better because he created the world, right? Job 38 um, is a great passage. The Lord actually kind of makes fun of Job. He's like, hey, look, were you there when I formed the mountains? Were you there when I formed the seas, right? And so part of the answer to this problem of evil and this problem of justice that Habakkuk is dealing with is that the Lord... We know the Lord is working out all things together for good, um, and we have to be patient to see that. And we can live in the faith of those promises. But what's one of the ways we know that is because the Lord designed it all. The Lord's in charge of it all, right? If if the Lord is powerful enough to um, make the oceans and make the mountains and make the stars and the whole universe— He's certainly powerful enough to deal with these problems we have here on earth, right, because of because of sin. And um, so the Lord's going to so, – so this is different than Job in that Habakkuk now in his prayer is just going to praise the Lord for his work of creation. And kind of it's – what it's doing is it's putting things into perspective, right? Thinking about creation puts things into perspective. This is why um, every time I do a catechesis or confirmation class, catechism class, I always start with creation. And um, there's the and the, the reason that's a little bit noteworthy, I guess, is just because the catechism doesn't. The catechism starts with the Ten Commandments. But I think this is one place where Luther was a little wrong. Um <laughs> Believe it or not, right? I, I do disagree with Luther sometimes. Um, I think you always start with creation because it puts everything into perspective, right? And this is where the Bible starts. That's the beginning. Right. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. That's where the Bible starts. So um, I, in a more Christian context, I understand why Luther starts in the Ten Commandments. But um, 
I think it's always important to just put everything into perspective. Look, God's the creator. He's the sustainer. That makes everything else fall into place because that means that we're going to submit to him. We're going to humble ourselves before him, right? Whatever he says goes because he's the one who owns it all, right? All right, so um, that's – and then and what does Habakkuk say to kind of preface that in verse 2? Um, this is his kind of – this is the beginning of his submission. I have heard your speech and was afraid. Revive the work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. That's that patience again, right? That in the midst of years, make known what you are – what you're saying, Right? The Lord has promised that he's going to take care of these things. And he's saying, in the midst of years, make it known. He's saying, I'm okay with it taking time, right? And how? why am I okay with it taking time? Because I know that you made it all, right? Um, and then I do like this one little line he includes here in verse 2. In wrath, remember mercy, right? So that uh, Habakkuk doesn't want to... He, in a way, he does kind of keep his lament close at hand, right? He just says, Lord, I know that you're going to be wrathful, but also remember mercy, right? Anyway, go ahead, Steve. The very next line, uh, he writes, God came from Keen, the Holy One came out for And I, is that a place, or is that like the universe, or you know, where did God come from? Um, that's a good question. I think uh, these are places. I I I didn't look this up. I I'm just gonna have to look it up. I don't Probably remember. Probably a place where God was with him previously. Right. You know, so he's also here. There's no to this. I'm I'm punting here because I don't know, and I I do need to look it up. But um, my guess is that oftentimes when the prophets speak in terms like this, that it's normally real places, but they're normally metaphorical for something. So if I was just to, to guess, and I, I don't I, – again, I have to look this up. Um, Mount Paran is maybe like a very large mountain or something like this. Yeah, at least the highest one. Right yeah, it's, that, yeah, yeah, it's probably somehow symbolic in that sense right. where it's like um, – it's trying to show something about the Lord's character. So – I'll have to look that up. Um, I'll have to write that down. Paran. All right. The next passage I want to look at uh, in chapter 3 before we – and this will be the final thing before we go to Zephaniah – is the final couple verses in Habakkuk. Um, he, writes a, he writes a hymn. Right. So if you see at the very, very end of chapter of verse 19, excuse me, uh, you get to the chief musician with my stringed instruments. Now, exactly where this hymn begins is uh, up for interpretation. But um, my my Bible here and I think it's it looks pretty somewhat clear in the Hebrew, although, again, it's debatable is that this hymn starts about verse 17. But anyhow, uh, so starting at verse 17, this is a song that Habakkuk sings. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, 
and the fields yield no food. Though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me walk on high hills. Right. Um, this is a great little hymn we have here. Uh, first of all, just verse 17, right? Though all these things be gone, right? Though the fig tree doesn't blossom, though I don't have any figs that year, though the ol- I don't have any olives that year, no fruits on the vine, uh, the flocks get killed, they're cut off from the fold, there's no, 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 no livestock in the stalls, right? So basically he's talking about all the earthly goods disappear, right? I don't have anything. I'm poor, right? I'm hungry. I'm starving. Uh, though these things all are happening, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation, right? And this is this is Philippians 4.13, right? I know when Paul's saying, I know what it is to be poor. I know what it is to be rich. I know what it is to be shipwrecked. I know what it is to not have anything, Yet I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? That even when we have no worldly blessing, even when we have no worldly treasure, we can still live by the promises of faith. We can still be patient for the God of creation to come and help us, right? And uh, we still know who's in charge, charge, right? Even in the worst of circumstances, we can have this faith. And verse 19, the Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet. This is a common refrain throughout the Psalms and, and prophets is that um, what are the – so you got to kind of imagine the mountains, these mountain deer um, in the ancient Near East. Uh, first of all, deer are one of these animals that they don't, they don't hibernate in the winter even. Um, they constantly have to be on the lookout for food even when there's not a lot to be found. Right, they they're constantly looking for little pieces of greenery to eat and digging through snow and all these things. Um, the the other thing about deer is that they like the the feet especially is that they'll stand on cliffs, they'll stand on little tiny rocks, they'll jump around right through the the mountains and and they never fall, right? Um, so this is what the image is is that God makes us to be like the deer in this way that we can stand firm even in treacherous circumstances, right? And we can still survive. We can still find our food uh, even when times are hard, right? He will make me walk on my high hills. And the other side of that is that there's a beauty to it, right? The deer are beautiful in the mountains, right? Um, That it's not like, you're barely surviving and it's an ugly and sad existence, right? And it would be better if, if we all just died because it's such a poor, sad existence. No, this is a beautiful existence, right? This is uh, something of beauty to embrace the Lord's provision. All right, any final questions on Habakkuk? thinking about maybe doing Habakkuk for Advent this year. Um, we'll see. I like the part about where they're complaining and, and he says, well, yeah, I'm going to bring Babylon too. 
Yeah. <laughs> we're gonna get you know, you're gonna get it too. Yeah, you just only thought it was bad. <laughs> yeah, I always thought it was bad. <laughs> right. Um all right. So Habakkuk is is uplifting. Zephaniah is not so much. So that's all right. <clears throat> There is, Zephaniah is still uplifting in many ways too. Um, but let's go ahead and, and hop over to Zephaniah. Uh, it's just the next page, so so you should be good to go there. Zephaniah, um, let's give some background here. So Zephaniah means the Lord protects. The Lord protects. And one of the things that Zephaniah, well, really the thing that Zephaniah is going to be focusing on in his book is the coming day of the Lord, which we've talked about a little bit before. We'll talk about more in a second. But uh, the the day of the Lord is in part a day of destruction. And one of, I, I think, the really the overarching theme in Zephaniah is that in the midst of the day of destruction, there is hope. So in this way, it is very helpful. I mean, he talks a lot about destruction. But in the midst of this day of destruction and the day when the Lord comes to bring his justice, he's still going to protect his people, right? That there is a protection that exists from the Lord. And so um, that's why Zephaniah is called is is the name the Lord protects, right? All right. Um, at verse uh, one one, we find out that uh, I'll just read it real quick. The word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. So he actually uh, Zephaniah is interesting too, and in that he has a bit of a um, genealogy there, which is not true of most of the minor prophets. Um, some of the minor prophets, like we don't know anything about them really. So Zephaniah is uh, maybe a little bit better known in the area, which is interesting, right? Um, yeah, I'm, you can kind of just think about this, is that it's one thing if a if a person comes out of nowhere and starts saying stuff and you're like okay i mean maybe he's got some points but who is this guy right it's a little bit of a different thing if someone's got a bit of a genealogy if people know who he is and he says things right it's kind of like um i don't know maybe this is a bad analogy but in the uh republican uh primaries and debates going on right now you got uh that you got the guys that are literally always there, like Chris Christie. It's like, I mean, I, you're pretty sure you're not going to be president at this point, you know? Like, you've done it like 20 years in a row now. Um, still hasn't worked out, but anyway, whatever, maybe. I don't know. Uh, but then, but you know who he is, right? Like, you know, like these these guys that are um, that have a genealogy that have been in polit, their family's been in politics for a long time. But then you get that that business guy 
what's his name? You know who I'm talking about? The he he's some kind of what is he Indian or something? I don't know. Um, yeah, yeah, whatever that guy's name is. I know you get that guy, and um, this is the point though, right? It's like you don't really know who he is or where he came from. He's just some businessman, right? And it's like he's interesting to listen to. Maybe he's got some points, but you don't really know exactly where he came from. Um, and so there's a, it's just a different dynamic, right? But anyway, Zephaniah seems to be someone that people know. Yeah. Yeah. When I look on the uh, divided kingdom chart, you look back at Hezekiah, and I think um, he's uh, Zephaniah is his son, right? Um, it's well, it's like great great grandson or something right, like that. They look at, you know, it was good and good, you know. Right. So that's what you're talking about. That's the history that he has. Yeah, and he prophesies. So this is a, this brings up the next point: is he prophesies in the days of Josiah. And Josiah is the last good king in uh, in Judah, right? It's right at the end of the the kingdom. And Josiah is the king who rediscovers the Bible, right? And and, and he's restoring all these things in, in Israel and or in Judah, excuse me. And Josiah is like actually a pretty good kingdom. And Zephaniah is this known good prophet, right? But interestingly, Zephaniah has nothing really good to say, right? So Zephaniah has seen um, and he knows the history of Judah and he knows where it's headed. And it, it is kind of interesting to think. I think I was trying to think about this like, so Josiah starts good and he even ends good, but it does end poorly. So do, do you remember the story of Josiah? How he goes, how he dies. Yeah, he insists on going to a battle that he that the prophets warned him don't don't go. But he's prideful and he wants to. It's like a good, like. It's a good instinct, but the wrong time, right? Um, and so he his life ends in a in this fit of kind of this fit of pride, if you will, and. Um, we know at that point then, when we when we read through the Kings and Chronicles, right, that Judah is on this certain path to destruction by Babylon. Once Josiah is gone, um, things are not going to go well, right? They're they're getting too cozy with Babylon, and uh, it's it's just not good. So I and then on the other hand, at the before Josiah is Manasseh who's one of the worst kings in Judah, right? So sometimes I, 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 well, when I was preparing this, I wondered if, Joseph, if uh, Zephaniah, if he's prophesying more at the beginning of Josiah's reign when things are starting to look good, but he's still coming off the heels of Manasseh, or if he's prophesying right at the end of Josiah's reign and uh he sees that even though Josiah is good, things are still not going to go well, right? Because Zephaniah, like I said, he doesn't have a lot of uplifting messages to share, at least at the beginning of the book, right? Have you, have you got your divided kingdom paper? Yeah. Because uh, Ammon was the one right ahead of Josiah, and it was evil, evil, and then Manasseh 
Oh yeah, yeah. I missed Ammon. Uh, Ammon's only king for for two years, so I forgot about that. But uh, yeah, Manasseh's the big king right before. Or, and yeah, Manasseh does repent, right? Um, but the uh, that that's right. That's what happens. So Manasseh repents at the end of his life, but then um, his son he had his repentance didn't mean much for his son, right? His son uh, Ammon was uh had grown up in wickedness and and still retained the wickedness right so um anyway it's kind of interesting to think about when when exactly is zephaniah prophesying this during josiah's reign or maybe it's just somewhere in the middle but um the point is zephaniah is still urging judah to repentance right he's not taking anything for granted so that's that's an important uh point right um but this is uh just uh, right at the, so we'll say it's around 605 to 586, somewhere in there is where this is happening. All right. Um, one more piece of background that is worth noting is, so we got uh, names and dates and let's do location. When Zephaniah prophesies, one of the things he's going to prophesy against is the surrounding nations. And it's interesting, he prophesies against Philistia, right, the Philistines, Moab, Ammon. Um, let me make sure I get these. Um, and then uh, Israel, the northern kingdom and and assyria now of course he also prophesies against judah but if you look at a map i'll try and show it up here as best as you can see if you look at the divided kingdom map i need to print more of these packets out um i'll try and do that so we got judah here um and then you got philistia to the east right and and especially think about where well, where Jerusalem is. It's up here in the northern end of Judea, right? So you got Philistia directly to the east. You got Israel directly to the north. You got Ammon to the east and Moab to the to the southeast. What Zephaniah is doing is he's drawing a circle around Jerusalem. So that's that's what's going on there. And it's, it's pretty interesting, um, I think, uh, that because that's that's symbolic in what he's going to do, which we'll talk about here just a second in the outline of how he draws a circle around around Judah, and then he kind of he it's like he's uh, making a target, and then he shoots an arrow right at the target, mm-hmm. right? So it's a kind of interesting thing. Um, Moab and Ammon are are interesting places to talk about too. Those are um, the descendants of Lot, right? Where the the if you remember back in Genesis, these have always kind of been weird places because Lot's daughters uh, got Lot drunk so that they could preserve his seed, right? And they slept with their father and produced these two children, um, Moab and Ammon, right? And then the, that's where these two nations come from. So, and they've always been basically enemies, more or less, with with Judah and Israel. Mm-hmm. 
But um, and then Philistia is the kind of other. So Moab and Ammon are these kind of half uh, descendants of Abraham who are at enmity with Israel and Judah. And then Philistia, on the other hand, is one of these pagan Canaanite nations that this is the Philistines, right? David has to Goliath and all that, right? Yeah, so the just the good old the good old Canaanites, right? The good old Philistines. Um, all right. Um, so we got name, date, and location. Let's talk about main themes. We got about seven minutes here. So the biggest theme that we need to talk about is the day of the Lord. And if you read through the book of Zephaniah, you're going to see this phrase um, or just sometimes summarized as the day or the great and mighty day or something like that. You're going to see this phrase come up again and again and again and again and again. Um, it's it's going to come up a lot. Now, this phrase is actually very common among a lot of the prophets. Uh, a lot a lot of the the twelve minor prophets and Isaiah and Jeremiah they all use this phrase, and it it's basically got the same meaning I think everywhere. But Zephaniah is kind of the guy who makes it his his own, right? He uses it constantly. Okay. When we talk about the day of the Lord. Um, it's going to be twofold. It's going to be a day of destruction on the one hand and a day of redemption on the other hand. And the reason that is, is because it's the day when all things are made right. It's the day when all things are made right. It's the day when the Lord is going to execute his perfect justice and his perfect mercy and his perfect love. It's the day when the Lord is going to come to his people and he's going to make all things right. He's going to vindicate the righteous. He's going to punish the wicked. He's going to do all things. He's going to put everything back in its place. Right? This is the kind of basic idea. Right? Um, This is also very uh, eschatological, if you will. So eschatology is the study of the end times or last things, right? It's eschatological in the sense that there are lots of days of the Lord, um, if you will, right? So I think um, whenever we think about this day of the Lord, you can think about the, the idea that there's multiple days, right? So in one sense, um, what we're what they're looking forward to and Zephaniah is looking forward to immediately is uh, the Babylonian captivity, right? When when Babylon comes and and destroys Jerusalem and takes Judah captive, that's going to be a day of the Lord, a day of justice, right? Um, but then there's also going to be uh, in one sense, the return, right, from captivity is going to be another day of the Lord when the Lord's going to execute His perfect justice and mercy in that way. 
Um, and then when we get into the New Testament, right, when, when Christ comes in the incarnation, we got his incarnation, we have his death, we have his resurrection. All of these are days of the Lord when, the, when, when God is making everything right. But all of that said, the ultimate day of the Lord is the last day, right? The day when Christ comes again. Uh, this is and and when you read Revelation, what is John quoting constantly? The prophets. If you don't know the Old Testament prophets, you will never understand the book of Revelation. That is it, that it's most of the book. It's him quoting and interpreting the prophets. And this is uh, the this day of the Lord. This is very much about what the book of Revelation is about. It's about the last day when Jesus comes back again, right? So the prophets kind of, in one sense, have this, this ultimate end in mind, right? But it's always got these moments within history that are representative, in, in one sense or another, of the final day, right? So it's both and. It's both and. Okay. All right. Um the next theme we want to talk about um, is the merging. What time is it? Okay, I got a little time. Of Jew Gentile. So, one of the things that is uh, going to be happening here in um, Zephaniah is Zephaniah is going to point out this merging of the people of Judah and Israel and the people of the surrounding nations. Now, this happens in two ways. One, in their condemnation of their sin because what's what's happened in Judah is that the people of Judah have taken on these pagan religions uh, religions right they've worshiped Baal they've become idolatrous right and so they're condemned for the exact same sins because the people of Judah have taken on the sins of the other nations onto themselves but then also Zephaniah in the last part of the book is going to point out the merging of Jew and Gentile by faith. That anyone who has faith, no matter what nation they come from, is part of God's people. Right? Uh, so this distinction between Jew and Gentile, the purpose of it in the Old Testament is just to bring about the seed, to bring about Jesus Christ. But um, other than that, the people are equal in the fact that they're all sinners and the fact that they all need faith to be saved, right? Then there's no difference between uh, Jew and Gentile in this way, right? And so Zephaniah really hammers home uh, this, this theme, right? Um, all right. And then um, finally, the, the last theme, and we'll, we'll end here really quickly, is... Uh, the theme of idolatry and restoration. So this is kind of the 
this is kind of the problem solution of the book is that the problem is idolatry. Like this is the main thing that Zephaniah constantly condemns Judah and the nations for is their idolatry of of other gods, um, whatever those gods might be. But then in the last part of the book, um, starting in, in chapter three, there's going to be this all this talk about restoration, right? And the talking the the connecting point, if you will, is this day of the Lord, right? This is this is what turns thing this is what takes care of the idolatry and brings the restoration is this day of the Lord, okay? This is the connecting point. So um, those, those are the main themes of the book. Next week we'll get into the outline and then into key passages. Any any questions? Comments, concerns. All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for this day. Uh, we thank you for sending your prophets to preach to us your holy word. And we pray that your word would also be proclaimed today in this place and that it may edify those who hear. We pray this through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen.